This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we welcome two great artists, Pulitzer and T.S. Eliot Prize-winning poet Sharon Olds, and Tony, Emmy, and Grammy Award-winning actress Cynthia Nixon. In this entertaining conversation, co-presented by the Academy of American Poets, Olds and Nixon discuss theater, Emily Dickinson, and channeling their energy into art. Hello. Hi. <laughs> hmm. We're in this peculiar situation where we've been invited to dance with each other, but no one has been chosen to lead. <laughs> oh. Mm, mm. <laughs> and we're going to have a conversation that we haven't practiced, and then we're going to have a conversation with all, all of us. And special thanks to you who make it possible for all of us to be more of us. So, maybe we'll start with Emily Dickinson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, do you remember the first time you read an Emily Dickinson poem? I think I don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's going really well, I think. <laughs> But I'm sure that it was um, in a book, uh, in an old-fashioned school book, with commas instead of the dashes. So I wouldn't have really been reading an Emily Dickinson poem at all, really, yet, until I saw a page with that rush, that, that rush of passion. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I first, that's it, that's right. <laughs> I, um, my mother loved Emily Dickinson, and so I, I think I was exposed to it very early, of course in school, right, but also um, we had a, you know, Julie Harris played Emily Dickinson in, on stage and then on television in the Bell of Amherst, this one-person play about Emily Dickinson, which mm -hmm. now seems a little dated when you watch it, even though Julie Harris is wonderful. Um, but we also had a record at home of Julie Harris reading selected uh, poems and, and letters of Emily Dickinson, which I thought was very nice to have them, you know, both not separated like that. And what was your impression of who she was or what was coming forth from within? Well, I, I love this record. Mm. I love this record. And I, you know, I, I, I remembered, I think I mentioned to you about, you know, she, the incredible enthusiasm of the letters, you know, the incredible love that came through them, and oh, the Adirondacks, you're going to the Adirondacks. Right. Right. I love the word. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because I, e e even now that I've spent a lot of time with Emily Dickinson in her poems and biographies and stuff, it, she's still always filtered through Julie Harris for me, which is sort of mm. like I, I came to love uh, Loretta Lynn's music, but I came to love it 
through Sissy Spacek singing it in the movie. <laughs> right. And I still kind of prefer to listen to Sissy Spacek being Loretta Lynn than actually Loretta Lynn being Loretta Lynn. Right. But, right. But A story that I mentioned to you is that I was uh, preparing a, a craft talk for fellow poets about Emily Dickinson's craft, and I was writing about her meters and her, her feet her uh, trochaic and iambic, et cetera, feet. And then I had a little moment where I, not a hallucination, but an imaginary vision. And I could see uh, as if it were her uh, foot um, uh, stepping naked, stepping down out, out of bed in the morning onto a hardwood floor, like a very old New England hardwood floor. and. I was very moved, and I, I thought, it's her, it's her. She really was alive. She really lived. A real person wrote these poems. For some reason, I had never really understood that before. Her foot, her sweet, dear foot. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we're used to, you know, giants like Shakespeare or Chaucer. Do you know what I mean? Someone who lived so long ago and seemed so remote, but she didn't really... Right. Lived so long ago, so it's. I mean, it, yeah. it's a very. So, in thinking about this today, I started thinking about the idea of, you know, the public and the private, and there's almost. No, I mean, she's such a, a a fascinating example of that. She's such a she's such a private person, and we, but she was so revealing in her in her poetry, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. not necessarily of autobiographical, but we, but we pour over it now and we think, who is this poem about? And mm -hmm. what is this, you know? Mm -hmm. So. And I've just thought of something which is, um, I don't think, uh, right, that she's so um, in intimate and so passionate and so revealing. And she wanted those very poems to go out into the world. It wasn't that she knew no one was going to read her. She hoped that they might until she found out how hard it was going to be for her to get any of her work out. But th that very revelation and in intimate bearing, that's what she had to give, and she wanted to give it. She wanted it to find its readers. She tried. But she also asked that her poems be burned, too. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> well, each of us has our own, Emily. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think that's, you know, when someone asks for their work to be burned, uh. do they really mean it? <laughs> do they really mean it? And her know? brother saved them, is that right? Her sister. Her sister. Her sister. Good sister. Yeah. 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 So, um... You were speaking to me the other day about um, when you are kind of submerging yourself in another poet, how you like to um, kind of live in their meter. Um, yeah. I mean, I like to scan their poems. Scan their poems. And, and it's a way of... It's a way of... of, of uh, uh, it's a way of making little markings um, that show what the strong beats and the weak beats are in each line. It used to be taught more in school, like 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 uh, uh, my each 
my fingers will be strong beats, right? No longer mourn for me when I am dead, right? It's not no longer mourn for me when I'm dead. So that's the iambic pentameter that we know. So yes, I like to scan. And I also like to do that with Emily Dickinson because there's such a variety of beats. Kind of like counterpoint dancing to certain kinds of rock music, of, you know, or dancing to two beats at once. It's, hers was not da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It skipped around and <clears throat> it had feisty, spunky meaning in the meter to me. But also, and I'm really not a, you know, very astute about meter, um, but wasn't one of people's complaints about Emily Dickinson, you know, publishers who didn't want to publish her and, and whatnot, was that it was a very um, a childish meter, like a nursery rhyme or like a, like a hymn, right? Like a... Huh. Um, that sounds right, yeah. Because. I'm looking over to Jen from the Academy. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. I just, when I, when I finally arrested this PhD from, uh, from Columbia, as, as it happened, I, I made a vow that day that I would forget everything I'd learned if I could just write my own poems. And they didn't have to be good. They just had to be by one ordinary enough woman. And I see uh, kind of, I think I'm old enough to say it, my wish kind of came true. <laughs> I've gotten to write my own poems, and I've certainly forgot everything I ever learned. <laughs> so but there so, we are. But so what I want to ask you, <laughs> but so what I want to ask you is when you, when you scan another poet's meter, right, when you sort of submerge yourself, you know, in his or her, you know, many poems. What are you, what are you looking for? Are you looking to understand them better? Are you looking to sort of master their oeuvre and walk into it? Are you looking to steal things from them? Are you, what are you looking for? Not consciously steal, but certainly learn. Not master. Mm -hmm. uh, experience. Kind of dance. Dance with. To it, in a way. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah. Because as a, you know, as an actor, I, so my mother took me to theater from mm. a very early age. Mm. And, you know, she, we would not only enjoy things, but we would sit there and we would dissect them and yes. write and talk about performances and staging or the set or, what, you know, all the different elements. And what I found as a person who was trying to learn about theater is that when you saw something that was magnificent and perfect, you know, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? It's like you can't see any of the seams or any of the wires or any of the, the, the wheels working. It, when you see something that's perfect and, and a, like a genius thing like that, it's very hard to learn from that, I think. <laughs> it's very easy to be dazzled by it and moved by it and fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. But what I actually find, particularly when I was younger and I was still trying to figure things out more, I would go and see a, an evening of theater that was really very mediocre. And that I could learn from. Because then I could see the spine of the play, right? Because it was so sort of clumsily. You, you could see with the glue and the nails, right? Because it wasn't, 
it wasn't seamless. Mm. And I wonder mm. what you, do you feel sometimes that when you're looking for things not to do, if you read a less accomplished poet, you sort of think, oh yeah, that's always a trap. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or if you read somebody like, I don't know, Milton or somebody, do you know what uh -huh. I mean? That's so, yeah. do, do, you, do you learn from them in the same way? I think I, I can translate Milton into, say, Gwendolyn Brooks and Seamus Heaney uh -huh, uh -huh. For, for me. Uh, no, I, I go to poems because I need help in my life. I need to uh, learn how to live. And, and um, of course, I'm reading as a writer, but I don't really remember that while I'm reading. I'm looking for joy, beauty, fun, uh, you know, stuff to love, human, human uh, pleasure uh, to love. But I think whatever I'm picking up to use in my art comes, is unconscious. And, so, you, yeah. so you come to it as a reader, not as a practitioner, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Huh. As someone who shares in the practice, but yeah. And I teach only workshops. I never teach literature. So, um, so I'm just right there with 12 people around a table with uh, their brand new drafts. And that's where I'm happy. Hmm. Yeah. And do you like to go to the theater? Ooh. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm asking this is a little bit of a I trick know, question because I sort of know question. the answer. I'm afraid of going to the theater. Uh, it's so powerful. Um, uh, I did see a, a small production of uh, Anne Carson's Antigonic the other night in a home, and uh, and it was brilliantly done, everything about it, in this very small space. And Creon left the stage by turning her back to the audience in a chair that creaked a lot. <laughs> that was the exit. And it was also, um, and I, I was saying later, I wish someone would write a part in a play at the end, and someone could come up out of the audience screaming. I mean, if it's like Creon, and he kills his son, and he kills his son's beloved, or his daughter, whoever it is, he kills younger people than himself, <laughs> some of whom he his gave son, birth his son to. Yeah. And his would-be daughter. And his, yes, yes. And so I would be, I could be an actor if there were a job at the end of a tragic play of someone from back there to uh, scream. I wouldn't want to scare peop my fellow, you know, uh, watchers, uh, and I wouldn't want to hurt their ears, but we could work that out somehow, <laughs> and then dance, and then dance, a kind of bakai, just to exorcise um, the pain of human horror of what we can be like, as we all know so well. And yeah. would you like to scream? Yeah, oh yeah. If I, if I have to be there in the first place, <laughs> I would like to be able to, to get, or if there were some other means of harnessing uh, moral passion. I feel it around the seminar table with, with my students. Someone will read a, a new poem. We've never seen it. We've just heard it for the first time in the, in the poet's voice. And there's sometimes an energy in the room 
that we could get up and run a mile, or we could get up and build something. So I guess um, that makes me wonder. Um, I remember, and I think you're not going to know either, but I remember back in high school or college or something, we were reading about some critic of poetry, and maybe it was like Kenneth Brooks or somebody, you know, who had this very um, specific uh, formula for how poetry should be written. And it was like a very famous phrase, like moments of great, yeah. you know, right, uh, right. passion. Tranquility recalled yes. in... No, Passion no, recalled, recalled in tranquility. tranquility. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> ah, thank you. Very good. <laughs> you knew. I actually knew. <gasps> and so, but I don't get that sense from you, right? I don't get the sense that you're looking, that you're, I get the sense from you that you're more trying to put those feelings and thoughts down sort of more in the moment, or is that not true? Well, yeah, and if I, I tell stories in my poems, and if the story had a lot of something or other in it, I would want that to be in the poem, in the words, in the meter. But can I ask you, yes. how do you do that? Well, just tell us how you do the whole thing. When you do, uh, how do you channel the energy, your energy, when you are in a role? Perhaps Emily Dickinson would be of special interest, or any of the roles. Um, how, uh, how does that work with you? You're not alone in a room. You're right here. Right. How do you do What happens? Well, so when I, when I was, yeah. When I was little, I used to think that I wanted to be a writer. But I, I realize now, it now seems so ridiculous that I would think that I wanted to be a writer because I don't like spending that much time alone, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't like spending that much time in tranquility. <laughs> I like to do, you know, to yeah. do things. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think that that's, of course, a lot of what acting is, is, is doing things, right? Is, is, is getting together with a bunch of, of people and, and doing things. So um, for me, because I didn't never really had any formal training and I started when I was a kid, um, maybe I would be different if I had like gone to school for it and stuff like that. But um, as I get older, I try. I try, of course, to become a better actor. All actors try to become better actors, as you know. But um, when I was a kid, I or younger, also, I tried to to do things deliberately. Right? I would map out things in my head, performances in my head, and how they would should be, and then I would try and execute those, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is much more of a, like an English way of thinking about the yeah, outside in. Right. But nowadays, I do my best. I'm still not great at it, but I do my best to, to set up the conditions of something, right? To, to try as, as much as I can to make all the conditions that the character finds herself in. I try to, to convince myself, to trick myself, that those mm. circumstances are true for me, mm. and then see what happens, see mm. how I react, mm. right? Mm. Because, you know, I, I um, 
and, and, and the little bit of, of formal training that I, like I studied with Uta Hagen for a very oh. short time. Mm. And so, and she would have you do these great exercises and they were so great. And she would have you, you know, talk to people on the phone that are real people in your life. And, you know, I would, you know, talk to the person I was closest to. And of course, if I was being a hackneyed actor, do you know what I mean? If I was like having an idea of what, what to telegraph to the audience, like this is my beloved. And so when I'm speaking to my beloved, of course, I would be all dreamy and sweet and loving. And mm -hmm. do you know what I found that when I actually put that real person, you mm -hmm. know, I wasn't like that at all. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was extremely perfunctory and you, you know what I mean? And so it's one of the things about being, in, you know, you have these cliche ideas of, you know, what a person is like speaking to their lover or what a person right. is like speaking to their child or whatever. Yeah. But if you actually put in the real person, you know, substitute that person in your life that's as close to the, that, that character, you, you, things, will, things will surprise you. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and do you stay in a part? If you're in a stage play, yeah. Uh, could happen in people making a movie also. Do you stay in the part like when you go home at night? I look to my wife to see if she thinks yes. I do. But um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Good. We're in, we're in a great um, Yeah, no, you know, I mean, one of the things about a character, I mean, you, of course, we have people like, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman or Meryl Streep or Sean Penn, you know, these people who are really known for being transformational <coughs> actors. Christian meaning, Bale and meaning, meaning that if you saw them on screen in this part, you might not even recognize them at first mm -hmm. because everything they do, not only with their physical look, but their voice and their, their posture, mm. everything is, you know. But, you know, those people are few and far between, right? That's a very special gift and a fantastic gift. But what I find is that rather than, again, sort of like the story I was just telling, rather than saying, uh, oh, I'm playing Scrooge, and he's very cheap and mean, right? <laughs> and secretly lonely, but that's buried, right? Mm. Uh, and so then you would play an idea of what that is. And you would say, oh, you know, it's Scrooge. I'm nothing like Scrooge, but I'll just imagine what yeah. that is. But the thing about us is we all have everyone in us. You know, we all have Scrooge inside us, right? So what you have to do is you have to locate that that part of, you know, if you say, oh, I'm a super, super, super confident person and no one intimidates me, but I'm playing this person who's very, you know, overawed and intimidated, how am I going to do that? Well, if you think about it enough, you can think, um, I'm sure you can, everybody, the most confident people in the world can think of the person that intimidates them. And conversely, if you think, oh, I'm very shy and very, mm. you know, but you can think mm. of someone that you feel superior to and maybe mm. sort of run roughshod over. We all can. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I don't think that I stay in character, but I also think that any character that I'm playing, it, it, it's still a part of me anyway. And I, and I do feel that it is this weird, um, you know, occupational hazard of mm. being an actor mm. that because it's just different notes that exist within you, if you're playing a character mm. who is that way, particularly if you play, you know, Miranda Hobbs for many years, oh. do you know what I mean? Those parts uh -huh. of you that are like her, mm -hmm. they kind of get there. It's like a muscle. They get a lot of exercise. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you get, you turn into more of that person. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, do you do you feel like when you're well, I guess do you write a poem? Is it different? Do you do you write a poem in a day? Do you write a poem for a month? Like, do you do you work on multiple? I'm trying to figure mm. out also mm. you in terms of your version of staying in character when you're working on a poem. Like, uh -huh. do you sort of live in the poem? And do you work on more than one poem at the same time? And if no, you don't. No, I I, I put it to myself that a poem comes to me, but it's really not right. It's not like I'm sitting there and then. <gasps> oh, it's coming, it's coming. It's more like I'm noticing what's in my mind and I notice that, ah, mm hmm you know, that it's possible that would be, turn into something or become something or it's a very strong feeling or an image comes up. Yeah, I kind of, and so then I just sit down and write it and, um, and, and then it's done. <laughs> But do you? <laughs> it's really kind of like that. And then I, if I think I like it a lot, I don't want to read it for at least a few days. Oh. Because in case uh, it, it, it really isn't, in case I don't really like it as much as I think I do. Um, so I don't want to find out because after having written a poem is a kind of lovely time in one's day. Um, uh, yeah, and I write longhand with a ballpoint pen, and if anyone knows where you can find big fine point ballpoints, I can't find them anymore, um, in a grocery store notebook so I won't feel I'm trying to do something beautiful or right. permanent or... Um, but do you set aside, I mean, would you maybe be walking down the street and a thought would hit you and you would yeah. stop and, yeah. I stop and make a note. Yeah, I you won't, wouldn't write, but you'd write a note for for later. Yes, and I leave the vowels out because I've found that because if, you're a stenographer, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this may be true. I could I could definitely play a stenographer <laughs> at the drop of a hat. Um, no, because otherwise, if you do the real words, then the feeling of of what of the poem starts coming up and the poem starts wanting to move forward and go over the end of the line and back over the end and over until it's done. It's a kind of, it's a, a life force rhythmic kind of thing. So wait, so you, if you're in the supermarket and you have a thought, you write it down but without the vowels. Yeah. But I mean like a few of the words, just enough so when I get home, I will remember what it was. Of course, sometimes I don't, and you think, what? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but why would you not write the vowels? What's the danger? Oh, it's just, well, um, you, you, you don't want to write Then I'm it. starting to write the poem. And you don't want to do that. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I don't want to engage the whole thing. Um, just my thoughts and feelings until I have uh, some time and you know if I have an hour I write short poems so if I have an hour um, uh, I, 40 minutes sometimes just if I have enough time to l let it through me I don't I don't write uh, what's it called um, uh, 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 first thought best thought that was Allen Ginsberg's way of 
it's something called something like stream of consciousness or running away writing. Blink. Mm. There's a new thing, blink. Like oh. the first thought you have, it's, it's sure to be the right oh, one. Oh, yes. well, there's some great blink stuff in that Malcolm Gladwell book, blink, great book. Um, no, it's more like free writing. That's what it's called, free writing. Um, I don't do that. I, I like to get the right words if I can the first time because so I cross out while I'm writing and because if I put in a word to hold the place of another word the music of the word I've just used infects everything it does something slightly different from that which is it calls to all the words that rhyme with it to come to the poem it just has its own life like things in biology, they just have their own species. And so sometimes you put in a placeholder that's not a word, right? Uh, yeah, a line underneath. If just I a just line. can't think of the word. Yeah. Because the rhythm makes sense to you, but maybe not quite. And I know now. I need a word there, but the sound of it, the musicality, uh, many poets are just so, so musical. I'm not the most musical. Uh, but but I am somewhat so that um, that I don't try to rhyme, but my poems have a lot of rhyme inside them, and um, so if later I think that's not the right word at all, I take it out, and then later in the poem are all these words that that say, "But you called us to you <laughs> with that word," and then the whole things. It's tragic, I say. It's tragic. And do you... <laughs> is it the kind of thing where you would, you would, you know, stoop to looking up, you know, homonyms or not? Oh, I stoop. Yes. I stoop. You would, you would, yeah. you would, I'm trying to say, you know, dirty, but I want a better word, you know. Yeah. But I can't change modes, uh, so if I'm writing, I'm writing in my pen in the notebook. Yeah. So I couldn't uh, go... Go to the computer. Well, I would go, go to, to a book, book probably, Excuse in me, my sorry. case. In my case. <laughs> they'll have things. When you're my age, they'll have things that will be as strange uh, to the young people as the computer was to me when it first came along. Um, yeah, but later I love to look things up. And I've learned to Google, so then I can look up lots of things. I looked up your name. It's, it's related to the moon. It's related to the moon. It, it is related to the moon. Yeah. She's yeah. The, it's, a, it's a lesser name of Diana and Artemis, which is why I also have that email address, which we won't reveal right now. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I have a, I have a, a, a corporation. You know, I'm, I'm, I am a corporation. Uh -huh. I'm a person. Uh -huh. Corporations are people. Yeah. Don't yeah. forget. <laughs> um, and the name of my corporation. So a girl in high school who was studying German told me that my last name Nixon means mermaid. Oh, how Wasn't that nice? Lucky right, for like me, right? Nixie. Richard, Richard Mermaid. Yeah. Um, 
that's a weird thing to think about. Um, but 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 so so Cynthia, the goddess of the moon, right? The moon is known for being changeable. So right, my right. my my company is called the Fickle Mermaid. Oh, which I that's I, so cool. Yeah, I just yeah. Love, I just love. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. What else did I want to ask you? How far in advance do you know that you're going to be playing a character, and how far in advance do you start to um, get ready? Well, it's always different, you know. Sometimes you know a year in advance or something that you're going to be doing a part. And if mm. you're going to be doing a classical part, not that I do a lot of classical parts, but that's really helpful. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're going to be playing you know, Shakespeare's Cleopatra or something, it's probably good to learn that in advance, you know? Yep. But, um, but I knew I was going to be playing Emily Dickinson for many years huh. before it happened, but I never believed it would happen, uh. so I didn't do the work. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even when it was really, like, going into, it seemed so unbelievable to me that, that, that I would, there would actually be a feature film where I would, you know what I mean? Mm. And so finally, about six weeks out, I was like, wow, this is really happening. I, you know, and, you know, boy, the books on Emily Dickinson oh, yeah. are, you know. But, mm, um, yeah. but it, it is really interesting because there are some parts <clears throat> that you really need to prepare for a lot. Mm. And some parts you just walk on out there, you mm -hmm. know. And this one mm. was? This one you know, well, it's very interesting because, of course, you, if you were going to play Emily Dickinson, you could prepare your whole life to play Emily Dickinson. I mean, she wrote 1,800 poems, and there's so much uh, biography on her, and there are so many competing versions of Emily. And, and so, I, of course, I, didn't, I did a lot of research in those six weeks, but I didn't feel like I, of course, did enough. But then what was very interesting was once I actually got to work, Terence Davies directed the film. He's a British auteur film director. And um, he had also steeped himself in Emily. But there's so much Emily to steep yourself in. If, you steep your, if two people steep themselves in Emily, they might steep themselves in entirely different Emilies. Cool. And so what I, what I came to realize when I got there was it was actually probably OK. Maybe I had mm -hmm. even done too much research. Mm -hmm. Because, in fact, I wasn't playing Emily Dickinson. I was playing Terence Davies, Emily Dickinson, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Because there were so many different thoughts about, mm -hmm. you know, what she was like. So I mm -hmm. had to actually sometimes throw out things mm. that, I, mm -hmm. that I knew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, um, but, yeah. But sometimes, like, so I, I played, uh, I did this play, Wit, where I yes. write play this woman who's a, a very high-level John Donne scholar, mm. right? And so that's very over my head, but it's, it's so closely related to the poetry and literature that I do love that I just didn't worry about it. Ooh. So I did mm -hmm. very, I mean, I read some John Donne, and I read some mm -hmm. criticism, but I, I didn't mm -hmm. really have to worry about mm. it. It's very interesting. Mm. Whereas when I did this other play, Rabbit Hole, where this woman loses a child, it's a far more naturalistic play mm. and very, you know, mm. she's a very contemporary person in mm. short little sentences, you mm. know. Mm. But having never, thankfully, lost mm. a child, mm. I did know what, not know what that was. So I actually mm. had to do a lot of research. And it was mm. incredibly helpful because there mm. was nothing 
in my life that I could substitute and imagine what it was. Right. Or when I played, um, the thing about Emily Dickinson, at least, we only have one portrait of her and no one knows what she sounds like Ooh. or how she walks. So that's a blessing. Mm. Whereas when I played Eleanor Roosevelt, everybody in the world of a certain age knows what Eleanor Roosevelt looks like, sounds like, walks like, everything. So that was, that was a real fun challenge, but a difficult mm -hmm. challenge because, you know, you didn't want to be doing a Saturday Night Live version. Yes, Very easy to... That's right. You put the teeth in and you start talking that, a certain way. And, yeah, yeah. You know, we're in a very broad comedy now. Right. Um, right. But that was, that was hard, too. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that strikes me is um, all my writing life, I've written lots and lots of poems about people I didn't know. It, from the newspaper stories, or from, at one point I was doing a series, I thought it was a seven-volume uh, seven volume work about World War II. And I finished the first volume from photographs, because I was obsessed with World War II, and I finished the first volume. It was like about 50 pages. I gave it to my editor, and... Uh, you know, essentially the thing was, it just wasn't good enough. And it especially wasn't good enough for the importance of the subject. And so I've been able to describe a lot and emote a certain amount. And um, mm -mm, wasn't, I wasn't, a, you could say I wasn't a good enough writer, or you could say I, it, I wasn't writing about what I knew enough. And it often had these ta-da last lines. So... Um, and then I ended up, the next uh, book I wrote was a book uh, called The Father. I still talk about it in this way as if it's a book from about a father's dying and death from the point of view of a daughter. I still talk that way, a daughter. Um, and a lot of the stuff from the World War II book was actually in a strange way in that book. Because it was about people who had died, a lot of it was men, a lot of that same age, actually, as my own father. And, um, but most of the poems I've written about people I don't know don't work well enough for me to show them to anyone. Um, when they do work, I'm so happy because I think about other people so much. And I live in New York City, and you know, I live in the world, so I wish I could be a voice for more stories um, than my own. But, uh, so I don't know, I'm, I guess be, this is partly what's behind my wondering how you uh, enter the consciousness of another person, if that's the right way to say it, or let theirs into you in order to um, play them. Could you say a word about that before we uh, do our yes. circling at the yes. end? Yes. Well, um, I mean, I guess that's so interesting what you said about, y you know, you thought ostensibly you were writing about these anonymous strangers that you just saw their faces, but actually maybe you were, you know, you were writing about these men of your father's generation, and maybe you were writing about your father without knowing it. And so I think that, so for me, it kind of goes back to what I said about um, no matter how far the character is 
from you. Uh-huh. It's still a human being, and all the stuff yeah. that went up to make you know make Hitler or whoever. Like I have that in me, and I can I can find it if I if I mm. you know look for it in the right way. And it's also <clears throat> you know the thing is about an actor, an actor doesn't an actor creates in a certain way, but not really. An actor just takes something that some writer has created on mm. the page. Mm and finds a way to make that breathe and make it believable mm. and you know mm. trick people that that person is real so it's also it's you have to it, because whether the, the the writer is writing about something real or something fictional it has to have the the whiff of truth enough for the actor to want to do it and for the mm-hmm. audience to want to believe it. Yeah. And so finding the char- I you know the character has hopefully or I wouldn't want to do it presumably have already been found by the writer. Yeah. And so you just have yes. to just take it across right. the finish line. Wonderful. Well, before we engage in our conversation all together, um, I had an experience the day before I met Cynthia which was like 2 days ago or something like that. Wednesday. Yeah. So on Tuesday, I was thinking about tonight. I was thinking about being here. And I, I, I wasn't planning this. But I, it, just sitting there on my own, just by myself, no one would ever know, I actually wrote a poem for Cynthia from having been her fan for a long time. (laughs) So I also, what I was saying before about, or maybe I wasn't, but (laughs) if we wish to write poems for each other, then uh, I was sort of feeling almost as if I was, afterwards, when I was doing it, I was just in it, in it. And then I was thinking, well, maybe, 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 maybe we all wrote it. Maybe I wrote it for, for, for us all. Poem for Cynthia Nixon. You're very sweet to sit and listen to this poem <laughs> that you haven't heard yet. Well, you inspire us, and here's one result of that. Sin, poem for Cynthia Nixon. Among all the cynics, you are my favorite idealist activist. We read together once at a protest. I think you were pregnant. You were glorious. And as it goes with us, with us women, pear-shaped. You were urn-shaped, but not funereal. You were vase-shaped, oval, up and out of your body on the long stem of your neck, the flower of your face. Amaryllis, orchid, lily, moonflower with its all-seeing eyes. Look at you, you look so, oh my heavens. (laughs) Your extra intelligence like snacks for every foreseeable exigency packed. That's like Emily, not. But she would have loved you as we do. And in simultaneous time, she loves you. She asked us to give you her love. My daughter was due to have been born on Richard III Nixon's inauguration day, but the lady would not. 
the lady declined and arrived 10 days early. <laughs> like her, you have no mill house in you. <laughs> Though I, your colleague and admirer, am like a mill on a floss, the water, the words always rippling through me. And once a little bucket on the mill wheel has its four strong beats per line, one, two, three, four, the line is full and the wheel moves on. And now my little rhyme is done in homage of thee, sweet Nixon one. And I hand to thee this quiver for thy arrows of war against the end of the earth and against people's lack of love for each other, this bouquet of our thanks for giving us ourselves and others to see, to know, oh, blossom on for thy wife for thy children, for thy mother, and for us, and for thyself, oh, blossom on. I don't think I've ever received such an amazing gift. Thank you. You're so welcome. <laughs> and now I guess we'll take questions. Yes. And whatever else there is, we'll, we'll take answers, too. <laughs> if you want to raise your hand, I'll bring the mic to you. Hi. Uh, I've heard of artists that when they are producing something or working on something, they don't want to let anybody see it until it's completely done. Are you like that? Yes, that poem is completely done. When I'm satisfied with that, I've, uh, that it's interesting enough to begin with and then that I've rewritten it as much as it needs, I'm eager. To, to send it out. One doesn't feel that the world is exactly clamoring for it, you know. And, and, and <laughs> but we are eager, we are eager to give it away and, and um, yeah, yeah, to make an exchange of it. I don't know if that question can Well, apply. no, but, but it makes me think about Emily because, you know, when Emily would write a poem, I mean, Often, she would either write a poem for a specific person, or if she wanted to give a gift to a person, she would just choose a poem that she had already written, and yeah. then she would, you know, make them fancy, you know, with ribbons, and, and, and sometimes send with a little, you know, flower. I mean, they were really like, it was, it was a gift, you know, and, and so she would really dress them up, like, like children that she was proud of going to church, you know, she would dress them all up. But the only person that I think that she would show the poems to undressed mm. was her, her sister-in-law, her, her great love Sue, who lived next door, and who was very much her, her confidant, but also her uh, literary advisor. And so it was very interesting. Sue, the only, Sue when she would write uh, poem, you know, when she would write poems for Sue to look at, not as a present for Sue, but for Sue to look at, she would write them in pencil. Oh. So they were unfinished, like mm. they were still a work in progress, whereas 
when she would send them out, you know, they were all, mm -hmm. you know, sealed and cool, you know. safe in their alabaster. Safe in their alabaster. Yeah. Thanks. Hi. Thank you both so much. Um, You're welcome. It was a wonderful talk. And I was wondering, you sort of both touched on this a little bit, but um, you both, in your work, delve into really deep emotions. And it allows the person either reading or watching you to feel connected to you, um, to feel like we know you in some way. Um, and I was wondering how that works when you, with your private life, you have your own private lives that are not on the page or, or in your characters that you're performing. but where that public and private kind of that divide and how you manage that? Something comes to my mind immediately to that, which is I think that I've written a lot to find out who I am and to, and to try to pile up evidence that I'm not that sinner who was going to go to hell, right? So it's partly as if I'm a persona poet all along in a way. I do want to tell the truth, and I do want to, um, you know, um, come uh, come out of that that oppressive uh, uh, religious uh, ooh, patriarchally etc. Can't even say it patriarchally look <laughs> etc. Um, yeah, so I'm tr I'm kind of cre I'm trying to be accurate, but I also am hoping that it will turn out when I'm accurate that I'm an ordinary enough. Mm, good enough person? I guess, you know, I mean, I think it would, we were talking about this a little bit coming here, you know, like how curious we are, for example, about Emily Dickinson and wanting to know, you know, did she have lovers and which, if so, you know, is this poem about this particular lover and what happened with that, you know, all these things. Um, it's always curious the way we're, you know, writers who lived even a long time ago. We want to know, or, or actors today, we want to know all the details of their personal life. Um, I don't know, somehow being very emotional on film or stage, that doesn't seem like a private thing to me. You, that doesn't yeah, seem yeah. like a private thing. Um, and I think, you know, I try and, I try and be, you know, relatively private about things in my life, but I also, you know, being a lesbian, it's it's very, it's a it's a more complicated thing, I think, because um, because people are not people really being out to the extent that they are out nowadays is a relatively new thing, and so it seems important, and it doesn't really particularly seem like, um, you know, like sometimes when a, like a reporter will ask me something like, what's the most romantic thing your wife has ever, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> or like, how did your wife, rip I'm not going to tell you. That seems like an invasion of privacy, mm -hmm. but, yeah. you know, general things about my life don't, don't seem like it at all. Mm -hmm. Thanks. <laughs> it's okay. Oh. So um, this I th is a question for you, Sharon Olds. Um, 
I was struck by your saying that you turned to poetry um, to help you live, and and, and I may be misquoting you yeah. there, but essentially, yeah. and that, um, but that theater or going to the plays you find mm -hmm. so terrifying and overwhelming, and I'm wondering what poetry can be so powerful as the and theater writing in that form can help us live. Also, I just wonder what the difference of these those experiences are for you. Why, why is one ha, have that terror mm. for you, or mm. is so overwhelming that you you want to scream and dance at the end, or not, or not, or it's just too much to even cool. go? Cool. Uh, and yet, poetry you would turn to. So yeah, it, because one is more the private experience, and one I, well, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think it's because. A poem, when I'm reading it, is made of paper and ink. It's, and I could, it's, it's a, it's, it's, a, and then when you're, when, when we were at this play, ah, uh, 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 I don't know how to describe the extent to which I believed that the actor I think it may have been Yvonne Rayner, who I think I saw dance at, at. I mean, how that actor, who's maybe 80, being Creon, the, how could I describe or know how we differ from each other in the extent to which I believe that was Creon? I think I have a pretty high degree of belief, despite being in a small audience in someone's apartment. It was so like it would have been, except, of course, I wasn't going to get killed. Um, but it, it was, it's real people, people. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's it. It's all that comes to my mind. I'm going to have to also, I once went as a high in high school. I was brought to New, I came to New York from high school, and and uh, my aunt took me to a play called Tonight We Improvise. So I thought, well, cool. I like improvising. And at one point, people in the audience were standing up and talking, and and they'd made uh, they had made up this name Luigi Pirandello, and I thought, well, cool. That's obviously a made up name. And um, so I was starting to stand up at age 17 to just, you know, I was in the spirit of it. I kind of figured out what, and my aunt went, mm -hmm. and I, and then I found out it was a real play. They were all actors. <laughs> so I, I think it's probably just as well. <laughs> but this is, all of this is exciting to me and making me want to, want to, Try again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like this time while it's being passed around. <laughs> it's like hot one potato, two potatoes. Hi. Hi. I had a question for you about your collection of poetry and how you know when you're done with the collection and how you order the poems, how you know what to include, how many, and how you place them. And if I can add to that, yes. I, I'm curious to know also, like when you were doing, for example, The Father, right? Yeah. 
did you know that they were all going to be poem? Did you know that that's what it was when you started? So, but it's sort of related. You know? Well, let me go first here. No, I just write poems. I don't write books. I don't know what's going to happen. I need to write the poems and those and the fact that it turned out to be 52 poems in The Father. I really like that. Like I covered a year in the book The Father, you know, just sentimentally. I like that. But I've just done this with uh, a book that's going to come out in September called Odes. It's a book of odes, whatever they are. Um, um, yes, and I couldn't, I, I just chose the, what I thought were the best ones. Sometimes on my own, I'll think, what are the least worst ones, right? We know about that. Um, I'll choose what I think are the best ones and then ask them to tell me what their order is. And this one eluded me, the order, for a long time. And I felt it was like a bucket of odes, <laughs> that I just poured a lot of odes into a bucket. And that was not, that was like I, that was not right. You don't put a bucket of odes, you know, out into the world. <laughs> it's just not right. And then a friend, I said to a friend, just talking, gossiping together, I said, you know what I really like to do is like have it in, like say it could be seven sections of seven poems of seven each or so. And then say I could have Ode to the Hymen be at the beginning of the whole book as a kind of Ode to the Hymen. <laughs> and, and then I could begin each section facing page. There's a lot of uh, uh, sexual and gender and a whole lot of that kind of stuff. And, and have a sexual a poem uh, on either side at the beginning of each section. Then when I closed the book, they could sleep together. <laughs> and she said, sounds like a plan. <laughs> and it, that's what, how the book's ordered. <laughs> I'm so happy. Because that, to me, that's like, that's a responsibility to me. Find the order in it if I can. Yeah, so it's, it, uh, thanks for giving me a chance to answer that. Just this happened like a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a kind of a practical question for you, <clears throat> Sharon. Um, old. Um, you seem to be uh, conducting workshops. For, you have been conducting workshops for many, many, many years. Yep. I have a copy <clears throat> of your first book of poems here. And you describe what you do. Uh, yeah. Uh, right, workshops. And the practical question I have is how you come up with prompts. And do you use them again and again? And um, uh, why don't you give us an example? of a prompt you might have used recently. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you. So since I now uh, have been for some years teaching only in the graduate uh, department of NYU, so these are poets of whatever age who have been really working on their poems some time. And we are in the fortunate position of having many more people want to come work with us than we have places. So everyone who ends up there is, is someone whom we are passionately wanting to work with, partly because you learn so much 
from each other. And, you know, we want some of that to rub off on us. So I only will give now in that situation a prompt. Uh, and I, I even always say, this isn't an assignment. This is probably I should be doing this instead of you. This is, I used to think I was psychic. Now I know I just project all the time, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so I don't really give prompts so much now. But if some out of someone's work comes something, or it's the end of a semester and someone is just a genius, totally organized, classical, I might say, how, what would it feel like to go crazy in a poem? And you could just call it, if you felt like it, the one poem uh, I'm writing in my life in which I go crazy. And just to have fun, to see what happens. But there's one game that I play with when I'm with other poets or other people. <clears throat> Say there's five of us. We think each, we think of two words. <laughs> got him, got him, got him. Then uh, I say my two, Cynthia says you say yours. And so we have, what, if there are five of us and we have two words each, we have t 10 words. Is that right? <laughs> Sounds so weird. So we have 10 words. So we have a list of 10 words. And then we just start writing whatever. And everybody uses those 10 we words? We try to use those 10 words. It's called The Poetry Game. It is by Ruth Stone, great, late poet we love. You're welcome. And thank you to all of you for being such good company and just bless you, Cynthia. Bless Please you. Bless. thank Sharon and Cynthia. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.